First off, though, we are taking a look at vaccine appointments, and we have been looking at it from this side in some of the hiccups, you could say, when things started to roll out. The call centers, in many cases, were being very overwhelmed. Only one health authority in BC had an online system that was Fraser Health. That seemed to work a whole lot better. And now we have different age groups, and the good news for a lot of people is age groups are being expedited and being able to call in sooner than was first anticipated. But what does it feel like and what does it look like to be one of those people who is taking the calls, answering the phones of people who are eager and very ready to set up their vaccine appointment. Well, my next guest, my first guest, is somebody who has that job. And Tina is joining me right now. She's taken a few minutes out of her very busy day to let us know what it's all about. Tina, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. So you are one of the many people in BC that has the very important job of making those COVID-19 appointments. Uh, how did you How did you get involved with this in the first place, with the rollout of the vaccine? I heard about it through a friend, and I applied um, online, or I emailed, I guess, my resume out. Um, the park protest was um, doing an hour-long um, online assessment, which included personality questions. Uh, I had to answer 40 questions in 20 minutes um, on math, reading, comprehension, and then three um, two simulations with uh, the computer. And then I got a call about a week later, I was learning a bit more about the job, and then I was kind of officially hired on the Wednesday. It's pretty common nowadays for employees to um, or employers to um, do online assessments. You know, get a, to know the person online as opposed to you know in-person interviews, especially with COVID. But yeah, I was hired like pretty much um, a week, the Wednesday before the phone lines were supposed to open in BC, and then I had to um, set up my computer. I actually, ended up having to buy um eight hundred dollar laptop because I couldn't install the software on my computer for some reason. So it was a pretty pricey investment for me. I guess. Now, now you talked a bit or, or mentioned the fact that there had been a bit of confusion when it comes to training and after you got through kind of that initial process to get hired. What happened there? Well, um, that was that part was a bit frustrating. I mean, when the phone lines opened on Monday, okay, like, sorry, let me backtrack. On the Sunday... Like, once I was all set up, like, the Sunday before the phone lines opened, I had a two-hour orientation and um, training session on um, one of the um, software we'd be using. And then, like, the phone lines opened on Monday, and, like, I was watching Twitter. I was watching my Twitter feed, feeling so helpless. I'm like, like, training me sure. Like, kept me going. I want to help out and jump in and help out. But I couldn't because I wasn't trained. Um, but, uh, like, I mean, it was just kind of a little bit of a mess. Like, um, they put me in the wrong training um session for um, one of the authorities. I'm not going to mention which one. And then I finally got trained for interior house that I'm working with now. And um, then I started working uh, last Monday. Uh, I've had five shifts now, I guess. I'll be my sixth shift today. That's good that they work things out. Uh, Frustrating it must have been, though, for uh, getting the training, wanting to get that Yeah, but I mean, like, it's a new project. I mean, I guess new project and they... I mean, like, uh, I feel like we're the backup um, because, I mean, looking at the numbers that came out that first day, like, Interior Health had a pretty good number. So I think our call center might be the backup, like what they were mentioning on the news that day or something. I'm not sure, though. <laughs> so how are things going now? Great. I mean, all the um, customers, all the callers are really friendly. I'm, I'm working with a great team. Um, 
like we're all um, helping each other out in the um, group chat that we have if we have questions. And I mean, the form itself is pretty um, simple form to fill in. Like, I think that I haven't been trained in the others, but I mean, like, um, it's pretty simple form anyway. And we got a really good script to follow. So I mean, that helps a lot. I know you you can't share, and I don't want you to to talk about private information at all. But I think people are curious as to as to what it's like because uh, there's been such a, a build up to people being able to call and make their appointments. So can you talk a bit what's it like when people do get through to you on the line and are there to book their their time to get the vaccine? Oh, it's, they've been super patient. I mean, like we're still working on the bugs in our um, software. I mean, it's been slowing down at certain times of the day, but I mean, everybody's super nice. Like. Um, they just want to get their vaccine, so I mean, they're, they're patient with the process. I mean, in the end, they tell me I've done a great job, and I mean, yeah, I think just happy to get um, to get on the phone with somebody. Uh, I was asking one, I think, with the last shift, um, maybe one of the last ones, and they'd only waited about ten minutes on the line, which been really that bad. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, how long does it generally take? Is that about the the general time, ten minutes, or does it vary? Uh, depends on. Um, if I'm booking one or two people in, um, a little bit more efficient now that I'm getting used to the script and everything, but um, probably between 10 and 15 minutes for a call. Um, but some are more complicated and take up to 30 minutes. So I have to um, email my supervisor to question or ask my teammates a question or whatnot. But, I mean, um, we got to take the time we need. Like, there's no quota in this job for, you know, we don't have to, um, say, book, say, 100 people on a shift. Like, They'd rather we get the information right and like um, rush through it and get something wrong and have interior health have to, you know, follow up with people. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have many people calling in that aren't in the correct age group or calling in just Never, to ask questions? N- none. Oh, that's good. Oh, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Like, I mean, some of the spouses have been um, a little bit under the age bracket, but I just tell them they'll be able to call in a few days. And I get caregivers that call asking if they can book in, but... We're only doing spouses, so caregivers have to wait for their turn and stuff. But right, and are people pretty okay when you tell them, "Sorry, you can't call in, you can't book right at this point. You have to call back oh, yeah. in a few days." Oh yeah, they're fine with it. All right. So, how long have they told you how long you'll be you'll be doing this? Uh, about six to eight months. Um, there's other provinces that are using the same um, company, so possible when BC's done, uh, Ontario or Quebec might still need me or um, want a, an extra person or two. I don't know, but it's had about six to eight months, maybe a bit longer. Yeah, I guess it depends on supply. Of course, everything's dependent on um, the supply of vaccines and people to actually give the shots. So, I mean, that's going to affect the time as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, do people ask for a certain type of vaccine when they call? They do, and um, we just tell them um, that we don't have that information, that we told them it gets to clinic. And are people pretty okay with that? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, good that you got the bugs worked, not you, but good that the uh, the, the initial growing pains were worked out and kind of the glitches with training and such. Uh, are you enjoying it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. I, don't, I just have to roll out of bed and go to my computer. Like, <laughs> it's, um, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to working from home for sure, um, I mean, I don't have to worry uh, about, um, you know, nut allergies for one thing. I can eat whatever I want. And, I mean, I don't have to travel anywhere. Like, I can just roll out of bed, especially when I'm starting at 7 in the morning for the, when it opens. Right. And, and you're doing such an important job. This is a pivotal part of the vaccine rollout. 
Oh, yeah. All right, Tina, we'll leave it there. I know you're busy uh, with your job, with booking those appointments. Thanks so much, though, for talking to us a little bit more about what it's like behind the scenes. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Well, in-person religious gatherings are once allowed, again, in B.C., but only outdoors. That current health order was amended. The announcement, the amendment was announced on Tuesday by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Organizers of outdoor services still need to have a COVID-19 safety plan to ensure everybody participating follows the rules. And again, services indoors still not allowed to take place at this time. Uh, Let's bring in Brad Sumner, lead pastor at the Jericho Ridge Community Church. So great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, Jill. Pleasure to be with you again. Uh, what are your thoughts on this amendment as far as church services now being allowed outdoors? Well, I think part of the challenge is that it, it continues to restrict some of the key elements of what constitute a worship gathering, particularly singing. And so I think that's probably people's biggest disappointment because it's one of the big things that people want to gather for. And so I think there's an element of it's understandable, you know, there's a higher risk connected with some of those activities. But I think, you know, for us and for some other religious leaders, this hasn't moved the needle much to convince us that this would be a helpful pathway to pursue. Uh, but at some point, don't you also have to, to realize that, that, yes, singing is an important part of worship and gathering, but it's not essential. And, and isn't the essential part, if you're arguing that, it's, that something is essential, isn't the essential part that the coming together, the having the worship in the first place? Yeah, so we're we're still going to continue to think of creative ways uh, that are that are well within the existing restrictions to do that. So for us, one of the way things we're going to do on Easter is do a drive-in where people can come in their cars and they can then uh, sing in their cars. So that contains and, and maintains a, a, a little bit more of a safety focus, and then also be together in the sense that we're all physically in the same space. And so it is tricky to to recognize, you know, all of the different balances as to why people engage with their religious communities. And for some, you know, that that sense of community is the biggest uh, factor and that sense of belonging, you know, it it will be maintained. Um, Some of the other challenges, though, are, you know, this can work well for churches in the lower mainland and in southern Vancouver Island. But I was talking with a a pastor in Terrace this morning, and he just said, I said, are you going to change anything? And he said, Brad, it's three degrees and dumping rain here. Nobody wants to sit outside through that. And, And I so I understand his point as well. Uh, when you talk about the, the drive through uh, do you have any concerns with people perhaps showing up in vehicles that aren't from the same households and then singing and being in that kind of situation? Yeah, in our setting, we we part of our uh, COVID nineteen protocol for that is a pre registration, and so we're able to know who's coming and who's in whose vehicles, and so that helps us as well. And, and we have a pretty strong sense of, and I think a, a lot of religious leaders do of who's in which households in their congregations. And so for us, we would we're we would want to be pretty vigilant about not just maintaining sort of the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. And so we'll we'll be sure to communicate that real strongly to our people. Uh, you mentioned the temperature in Terrace, uh, similar to some other parts of the province, as far as not being the best weather yet, getting out there and doing the outdoor services. Uh, are there concerns because we are dealing in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases with groups that are uh, elderly, that are older, uh, that that could be a health concern that we're now encouraging people uh, to spend extended periods outdoors? 
Yeah, I think everyone's going to have to make their own decisions on that. But it, the, the fickleness of the weather in BC, wherever you are, is always a challenge for outdoor gatherings. So even you know beyond uh, COVID, we've had times where we've we've had to postpone or cancel an outdoor event just because it's not going to be the best for. Uh, we have a wide range of people, people who are under housed that engage with us, people who are seniors, like you referenced, and so we're always trying to put that event planning hat on and think is this the safest and wisest thing to do? And uh, part of that, actually, the pre-registration dynamic is really helpful in that respect because you can then communicate out to everybody and say the event is called off because of weather and it just isn't a wise thing to go ahead with. Um, so there, I think there's, a, there's an advantage there. I think the real one of the real uh, things that now become possible under the new orders is, is funerals. Um, because it, the order specifically, or the amendment to the order, does specifically now permit 50 people at an outdoor funeral. Um, and so I think that's a really life-giving uh, a window for people to be able to step into. And, and whereas some of the celebrations of life or funerals in the last year have been really challenging with just such a small group of people. And, and I've done an outdoor one, and we would have wanted to have had more people there, but it was at a time when that wasn't uh, why are safe. And so I think, uh, you know, this will be really a healthy thing to be able to step into for people who have been postponing that celebration of life. Uh, so up to 50 people outdoors for a funeral. Uh, is it also up to 50 people then for the, in, the in-person worship and other gatherings? Yes. If it's outdoors, it's up to 50 people, but the restriction on singing remains. And so I think that's where churches will have to really weigh it out. For us uh, in our setting, and as with many Protestant uh, evangelical congregations, we probably spend about maybe two-thirds of the time singing. Uh, and and the sermon component or the teaching component is the easiest one to deliver online. Uh, and so that's where I think we'll stick with our our plan of still streaming every weekend online. Easter will do a drive-in um, just because it's a special moment for people and for in the Christian calendar. And I expect some of my friends who are Jewish will will want to try and think creatively about some of their observances like Passover and things. Um, but yes, that 50-person uh, restriction is in place. And, th- and that seems uh, reasonably consistent because of contact tracing capabilities and everything that we've known and understood uh, from the public health office for, for the last number of months. So that that seems reasonable to me. Uh, So in talking with other uh, leaders uh, and members uh, of other congregations, do you think this will be enough uh, to to make people, uh, I don't know, happy with these rules? Or is there still going to be a push that, because we do often see that comparison to bars and restaurants, is there still going to be a push that uh, certain churches want in-person worship and they want to be able to do that indoors? Yeah, I think people will still want it, but I think the the epidemiological evidence still is suggesting that indoor settings are much more challenging. And so I I don't know in the in the limited conversations I've had uh, this morning with a few other pastoral leaders, I think they were hopeful for 50 person indoors with singing. 
And so that would be something that, you know, in some settings like ours, we have a we have a recently renovated facility with a top of the line HVAC system. So it would work in that setting. But I do also respect that a lot of churches have aging facilities and bringing people indoors into poorly ventilated spaces, even if it's 50, even with, uh, you know, with all the COVID protocols in place at this point by our provincial health office isn't deemed to be the safest action. And so I think it might buy a little bit of time, but I don't think it's going to make people happy enough to sort of make the grumbling go away. (laughs) (laughs) It does seem, and I get it, and I get, I understand that people want this, but even the the bigger churches, you've got to think if you have 50 people or 49 people in that church all singing, the amount of time it would take to just to make sure during that entire sermon, during that entire gathering, that they're staying at least two meters apart, that no one's kind of wandering over or or getting close to somebody else. I mean, those things have got to make people, you would think make people a little scared too, that that could be a potential super spreader type event. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thing that people have a a reasonable expectation of their religious community is that it should be a, a place of safety for them. And whether that's emotional safety, spiritual safety, or uh, physical safety, I, I think that is um, that needs to be on the table. And so if, if churches aren't able to create or enforce that kind of space, then I think people are right to say, until such time as I can feel safe, and that it is actually actively enforced, then I'm not going to engage with my church community in person in that way, even though I really, really want to. Uh, and so we're just, that's where we're going to hold the line and be respectful of that and and try to um, just wait until things, you know, there there is a more return to an ability for case counts to be lower and for uh, people that, that just the possibility statistically of 50 people being in a room lesson so that uh, the virus isn't transmitted as easily. Uh, and just to talk quickly about the singing, because what from I'm what from I'm seeing uh, what what I'm seeing on the public health order, uh, it's saying that masks can only be removed by soloists when singing, when worship leaders, when singing or chanting. And it says the only people who can sing are soloists and worship leaders. Does that yeah. mean that even so the others in the 50, the group of 50, they can't actually sing along? That's right, exactly. So it'd be a little bit more like a performance and a little bit less like a church gathering. And so that's why for us, the feel of it isn't quite in congruence with what we uh, would want to do. And and that's fine. We we understand the, the dynamics of that. Um, but that's where I sort of return again to the, the notion when people make the arguments and say, well, if pubs are open and they can have a you know live music there, but in the pub, you don't also then have the 50 people singing toward the musician the musicians are really the only ones singing. And so there is a sense of congruence here between that. Uh, and I think I, I just go back to the fact that it's really the actions that are occurring within a location are what constitutes risk. And and in a church setting, you have a really highly communal dynamic as opposed to you know a bar with a live band where it's a much more transactional setting. Uh, and so I think when we get into communal settings, the risk goes up. And so until such time as the risk is lower, uh, then here at Jericho, we're going to continue practicing and being safe. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Pastor Brad Sumner, thanks so much for joining us again. Absolutely, Jill. Happy to. Thanks for the invitation. 
Well, as you've been hearing in the news, uh, there is a move to make it possible that cruise ships could bypass Canadian ports. And this is something that Alaska is looking at, the state government there wanting to pass legislation allowing cruise ships to sail directly from Seattle to Alaska. That would be no stop at a B.C. port. And this comes in addition to the fact that our federal government has extended the cruise ship ban until next year. This was a big topic yesterday in question period. The issue is, is, is very clear. Uh, Alaska is sending some very strong signals. Uh, well, not even signals. They're being very, very upfront about it. They, they want to protect their cruise industry. Uh, they were mystified at the, at the lack of engagement on the part of, uh, of the BC and the Canadian governments when, when the borders were closed. That was BC Liberal critic Todd Stone and Tourism Minister Melanie Mark also spoke about this. Of course we care about the tourism sector. Of course we care about cruise ships and destination BC and being a destination for international travellers to come here to British Columbia. But right now we're in the middle of a global health crisis. We are now joined by Walt Judas, who is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on this move by Alaska to bring in legislation that would allow ships to bypass BC ports? Well, from Alaska's perspective, you can see it. They are hoping, by uh, all hope, that they have some form of cruises this year. So many of their communities rely on the cruise sector to sustain them for throughout the year. Cruise is a limited time period, of course, in Alaska, about six months, and those communities are almost solely dependent on the cruise sector for, as I say, to sustain them for the whole year. So from Alaska's perspective, you can see it from British Columbia's perspective. If this is only a temporary move, then so be it, because cruises are banned from our waters until next February. But the fear, of course, is once you institute a, a temporary measure like this, could it become permanent at some point down the road or will there be increased lobbying for it to become permanent? Then it becomes an even bigger concern. Right, because as it stands right now, it is the call for a temporary exemption, and which makes sense because, like you said, there aren't going to be cruise ships uh, stopping here anyway, even if there are cruise ships in the waters. Uh, is there a way, though, you think that we could maybe, or government could step in and make sure that if this does go ahead, it is temporary? Well, certainly the Canadian government has an obligation to lobby the U.S. government to ensure that it is only temporary. But what we've also said to the government of Canada is, look, why don't we evaluate this every three months, depending on what's going on? Nobody's suggesting that we want cruise ships in our harbours next month. Uh, but on the other hand, at some point, we'd like to see crews be able to resume and doing so, uh, ensuring the health and safety protocols are in place, but also looking at other measures that would allow the gradual reopening of borders, which is what our industry needs to get people moving again. And we're counting on the federal government to give us the criteria by which that could happen. Is it herd immunity for all British Columbians? Uh, could we look at something like a health uh, card, digital passport of some kind that proves that people have been vaccinated or that there is rapid testing in place? Those are things that we'd like to see and as vaccines are rolling out more rapidly now, particular, particularly in our province, 
could we potentially look at salvaging at least part of the cruise season for later in the year? So rather than an arbitrary ban right to February of next year, let's look at this in three-month increments to see where we are as far as fighting the pandemic and uh, as far as other considerations like herd immunity. Uh, do you think that our rollout uh, it could be um, could be hurtful as far as when you look at what's happening in the states and their rollout of vaccine? Uh, you look at cruise ship companies that are even starting and looking at, at booking cruises where you have to be vaccinated to be a passenger on that ship. Uh, would the fact that we're kind of behind in that go against us? In that, would a cruise ship even want to stop here if their passengers are getting out? And yes, they've been vaccinated, but if they're getting out in a port where there isn't herd immunity, maybe they wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, that's a big question to be sure. But, you know, cruise lines have put a number of pilot cruises in place and, in fact, uh, have extended some of their offerings in places like Europe and Asia. Somewhere in the range of 400 cruises have already uh, taken place or cruise ships have sailed in those waters uh, in the middle of a pandemic and have done so safely by ensuring health and safety protocols, and in the case of rapid testing, that was in advance of vaccinations. But uh, certainly they would want to take every precaution. If that means everybody has to be vaccinated, uh, including the crew, then absolutely they would take that step. But they really need some direction, too, from the federal government, not only on when they will be allowed to sail, but what are the measures that need to be in place to allow them to operate safely? What are the expectations? And when you talk about the ban that was put in place for the entire season, do you get any indication that there is room there to maybe relook at that and go to a three-month by three-month or even what's being done on the border, go by month by month renewals? Not at this stage. We certainly haven't had any response from the Prime Minister's office or any of the Cabinet Ministers that we sent our letter to. We understand, um, you know, clearly The priority has been on rolling out vaccinations, not only on a national scale, but province by province. But we hope to engage more uh, MPs and cabinet ministers in the coming weeks. And this is one of the agenda items is let's take a look at, aside from cruise ships, let's take a look at a gradual reopening of the border. And again, we're all about health and safety. We want to protect Canadians first. We're not suggesting the border has to open tomorrow or even next week. But what is the criteria that we need to adhere to or that government is looking to advance in order for us to reopen the borders and restart the economy, the visitor economy at some point? Without the movement of people and without international travel, it's going to be a very brutal year for the tourism and hospitality sector. Uh, Can you talk a bit about the industry itself? If we're looking specifically at the cruise ship industry, what kind of uh, an injection does that bring to BC's economy? Well, cruise in Canada is about a $4 billion sector. In British Columbia alone, it's $2.7 billion. And it not only employs, obviously, a lot of people connected with the ports, etc., and the cruise ships themselves and the cruise lines, but it supports the broader tourism ecosystem, hotels, the attractions, the transportation companies, including airlines and the bus companies, restaurants, 
there is a whole visitor economy that is built around cruise. Not to mention, I think that many people overlook the fact that cruise passengers come here largely from the U.S., but they've never been to Canada. They've never been to Vancouver or Victoria. They discover our destinations for the very first time, and they return, and they bring friends, and they travel to other parts of the province. And then the final thing is, aside from the tourism ecosystem, there are a number of suppliers that service cruise ships while they're in port. So it's a, it's a massive industry, and I don't think people recognize how important it is, but one only has to look at places like Gastown or downtown Victoria to see the impact of not having crews last year and now again this year is having. Uh, are you concerned at all with this move by uh, Alaska uh, governors, by legislators in Alaska? And uh, we've seen an ongoing push by certain environmental groups that would like to see the cruise ship industry banned uh, permanently. Are you concerned that that is going to, to get more momentum or get more attention paid to it uh, during this pandemic? Well, no question that is happening already. They're taking advantage of this uh, situation to certainly amplify their concerns about the cruise sector. Uh, on the other hand, I know too, and I'm, I don't work for a cruise line, I can't speak on behalf of the cruise lines, but that said, I do know that they are taking a lot of the steps necessary to be more environmentally uh, friendly as a sector. There is a project in Victoria that would allow cruise ships to use shore power instead of idling import as they've traditionally done. They've gone through great lengths to try to be better and more sustainable as uh, as corporate citizens. They're not quite there yet, but they've made uh, great strides. That said, I think the entire tourism industry is on that same track, trying to be more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, looking at the footprint that tourism uh, delivers in any destination and working towards mitigating that footprint to be sure but uh, so it's not confined to cruise i think the entire tourism industry has a responsibility and one that we're taking very seriously all right Uh, walt judas thanks so much we'll leave it there for today but thanks for coming on the program thanks for having me well you likely heard about this story tim peel's career as an nhl referee it is done after his voice was picked up by a tv microphone saying that he wanted to call a penalty against the nashville predators the league announced earlier today peel no longer will be working with the nhl games now or in the future peel 54 is from new brunswick he'd already made plans to retire next month an nhl vice president of Hockey operations Colin Campbell said earlier today Peel's conduct is in direct contraction to the adherence to that cornerstone principle that we demand from our officials and that of our fans, players, coaches and all those associated with our games expect and deserve. A lot of people have been weighing on in on this saying, wait a minute, isn't this something that we all knew was happening anyway? Let's bring in Dan Hanaman Singh, BC hockey coach and officiating program facilitator. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what is your response to how this unfolded? I think it's unfortunate on all levels. Uh, Tim's obviously a very experienced official. He has a lot of time in this league at the top level but the reality is is that we that his exactly as the nhl has said his comments really 
reflect poorly on the officiating community, and it's not something that we want to see in the, in the public eye in that way. Uh, not something that people uh, want to see or hear, but what do you say to a lot of the criticism that this is something people have assumed happens all the time, and this just happened to be an unfortunate case of it being picked up on a hot microphone? I think this, if anything, this should be a lesson for the NHL and for other leagues that we can do a lot by pulling back the curtain on what officiating looks like. It's a highly technical discipline. Um, and the more information that we put out there, the less secretive we are about how it works, the more the ordinary fan will be able to understand how that works. Um, and so an example of that would be you always want to judge every play on its own. If you've seen the video of the penalty Tim Peel did call, it wasn't a penalty. Um, it, was a, it was a poor call. But from that perspective, if you missed a call earlier in the game, if he had missed a call against Nashville earlier in the game, he'd be thinking to himself, I need to make sure I get the next call. Um, and so the next time Nashville does something, I need to make sure I get that. So it's nuance like that that we don't see as the average fan. But if the league is serious about this, they should be pulling back the curtain um, and helping educate fans and players on what that looks like. Uh, and that's an interesting point. So that kind of, of give and take that if uh, a, a referee thinks they've missed something or they need to, I don't know, is it to make up for something that might be more more focused on that or making a point of doing that? And yeah, and it's not about making up the call. And certainly in the amateur ranks, we treat, we teach our officials to never, never call a makeup call per se. But it's one thing to go to a coach or a team and say, you know what? I missed a penalty and I'm sorry. Uh, and most of the time, especially at a high level, players and coaches will say, okay, fair enough. But if you miss two penalties, if you miss three penalties, the response is going to be very different. So every official and anybody who's refereed that's listening understands that idea of, shoot, I know I missed something. Uh, I can't go back and call it now, so I need to make sure I get the next one. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to be inventing or overreacting to calls just to kind of even things up artificially. Right, because in that scenario, I think uh, we all agree we're all human and humans make mistakes sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing, and it's important to know that on the clip, uh, Tim Peel's mic does get cut off halfway through a sentence. We don't know where that sentence was going, um, but it does sound to me like one of the things he was trying to do is kind of play it off like, oh, I meant to do that, right? I made a bad, I may have made a bad call or a call I didn't necessarily, I wouldn't make again, but saying to his partner, oh yeah, I meant, I meant to do that. I meant to make that call. And it's unfortunately gets picked up by the hot mic. Um, and we have what we have now. Right, because the mic actually picked up. So the words were, it wasn't much, but I wanted to get a blank penalty against Nashville early in the, and then the mic cuts out. So is there a different way to interpret that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it could be saying that, he could be saying that Nashville's gotten away with something, or I think we missed something, especially the referee. Sometimes your linesman will come up to you and say, hey, you missed something behind the play, and you think, okay, I've got to make sure that I get again. i got to get the next call. So it's entirely possible that he overreacts to the contact, the very minimal contact. He calls a tripping penalty, and he knows, maybe he knows it's a bad penalty, but once you've got your arm in the air, there's really nothing that you can do about that. You've got to go ahead and call the penalty. So from that perspective, we don't know what was said. Um, and, I, and again, we've all, as officials, people who have officiated in any sport, we've all had those conversations with our partners saying, ah, 
that wasn't the greatest call or it wasn't the call I wanted. Uh, and so and it's unfortunate that we're missing that context around this clip. Because it does kind of leave people asking the question, are we talking about a, a case or a, I mean, every every type of work has people who are really good at it and people who aren't as good at it. So are we talking about a case of somebody who's a bad referee uh, because they're just not good at the job or somebody who goes out of their way to do things that aren't allowed? Yeah, absolutely. And especially at this level, one of the things about living in Canada is we have so many phenomenal referees. We have referee, great referees in the NHL and great referees outside of the NHL in our major junior and junior A hockey leagues. And at the level we're talking about here, there, there are not referees who are going out to get a certain team or a certain player. Uh, you might have, I'm not discounting the possibility, you have a bad referee in the same way you might have a bad politician. Uh, but for the most part, our referees are trained from the moment they step on the ice at 11 or 12, safe and fair hockey game. We want a safe game. We want a fair game. That's the mantra that they grow up with. Um, and so when we're looking, especially at this elite level, what we're seeing is officials who are either making poor decisions or even if it's repeated poor decisions, there's no reason to think that an official is out there to get a certain team um, or to be biased against one team. That just it doesn't happen at a widespread level. Uh, at the level that we're talking about. Do you think this is going to lead to people paying more attention or more scrutiny of referees? I think we do have a lot of scrutiny at this point of the officials, um, especially now in the age of the internet um, and in the age of instant replay, we have a lot of scrutiny of the officials. And so, and that's not going to go away and nor should it. Uh, We as officials, no matter what level you're talking about and under nine, right up to the NHL, you're accepting a big responsibility um, to facilitate a safe and fair game. Uh, and we take that really seriously and we really enjoy it. So I think increased scrutiny on the officials is a good thing to a point. But I do think our leagues, our decision makers, do have an opportunity and perhaps a responsibility to pull back the curtain on officiating so that people see more. We have more transparency. And with the hope that the average fan gains a better understanding of the process because again it is so highly technical that i think especially at the nhl level they need to do more to show the average viewer what the officials are doing and how the process works Uh, this is a referee who was planning to retire next month anyway he was fired about 12 hours after the game finished do you think that was the right move uh, I mean, it's tough to say. I think you can't. I think the timing is unfortunate uh, because you, there's no opportunity with his retirement coming up. There's no opportunity for him to sit out and sort of rehabilitate his credibility within the league. The other thing to keep in mind is that at the NHL level that we're talking about, it's a very small, very elite group of referees, players, coaches alike. So the dynamics, the professional dynamics within that league are very different than we would encounter in our ordinary amateur hockey, no matter what level we're at. So the procedures, the processes that can happen behind closed doors at the NHL level are very different. I think you look at a guy like Tim Peel, who has the experience that he has uh, refereeing at the Olympics, refereeing well over a thousand games in the National Hockey League, Um, that's an unfortunate way to go out. But I think the timing really left the league with no choice 
um, that he was not going to have that opportunity to perhaps rehabilitate his career. Uh, Does it also leave people with the question that he happened to get caught saying this on a hot mic, that maybe he's done this all along, or can we look back at his career and think more of this being a one-off? I mean, I think he's been in the league since 1999, um, and he has been, over the last several years, one of the most senior, one of the most trusted officials in the league. Uh, And so I think there's no reason to think based on his track record that this is something that's been happening all along, but it is an example of where more, more transparency from the league would be beneficial because most, uh, most fans, most viewers haven't heard the name Tim Peel or are not familiar with Tim Peel until last night. Those of us that are in the officiating community, we know who he is um, and we sort of keep track of our Canadian officials at the top level. But if the first time you hear the name as an, as the average fan is in this context, it's naturally going to lead to those questions that you've just described. And those are fair questions to be asked. And so I think this is more than just Tim as an individual, because there are many more officials in the league, some great officials, some average officials, just like any other profession or workplace. So uh, I would, again, I really hope that this is an opportunity for the NHL to increase their transparency around the officiating so that we can better understand what's going on on the ice. All right, uh, Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, we've talked about what it's like booking a vaccination. We talked earlier in the program about the changes, the amendments to the public health order when it comes to in-person worship for churches. That is now allowed outdoors as long as there are no more than 50 people participating and they stay distance and wear a mask. And Chilliwack Minor Football says, hey, we are ready to reopen if top health officials will go ahead to a phase three for youth sports. And with more on that, here is our show contributor, John Jang. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. We could be talking about the reopening of youth sports in BC by this time next month. It all depends on whether or not the province's COVID-19 case counts can avoid trending the wrong way and assuming the vaccine rollouts avoid any major hiccups. But when meeting with the media this week on Monday, Dr. Bonnie Henry had this to say about that possibility. You know, if things go well, I'm hoping we will get back to that uh, uh, sometime in near the end of April, hopefully. Chris Clark is the president of the Chilliwack Minor Football Association, and he joins us now. Chris, it's nice to reconnect with you since we last spoke in November. How have things been? Uh, things have been well, John. Thanks for having me on here. Back in November, we spoke about the announcement that the Chilliwack Minor Football Association would have to cancel the remainder of its season because of growing COVID-19 concerns in the community at the time. What is your reaction today when you hear Dr. Bonnie Henry in that clip? Well, that's, that's definitely uh, very exciting. When I saw that headline and, and heard that, uh, that news, uh, I, was, I was definitely hopeful. Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot can happen in a month, so we will see uh, uh, exactly what happens with the numbers and, and with the regulations. But, but hopefully, within a month here, we will be uh, rocking and rolling into phase three. I know a lot of people just want to get back to normal. One year later, we just want normal. And Chris, I know you've spoken with a lot of different parents over the past number of months. What are they thinking? What are they feeling when talking about putting their kids back into sports for the spring? Yeah, so we've uh, we've been running a, like distance workouts uh, as far as the, the phase two protocol goes. We have to stay three meters apart at all of our practices. 
no competitions, no contact, obviously, because we're outside of that three-meter bubble uh, for all of our kids. So we have been having some practices. Uh, it's been great to see the, the athletes on the field. Parents have been overjoyed for that. Uh, what this next uh, phase three or, or something like it will be uh, at the end of April will will be in that uh, closer contact inside the bubble and, and game scenario. So that's, that's what we're really looking forward to. I know, I know all the kids want competition. You can only uh, run drills, run cones, things like that so much before they start to lose interest. So this is what we're really looking forward to is, is actually playing games and, and having real competitions. And the players themselves, as you're describing here, Chris, like you can only do drills so many times. You can only tackle the, the dummy in front of you so many times. It's really nothing like being at an actual game and getting to practice, uh, uh, get rather getting to apply all the things you learn from practice in an actual competition. That's correct. Yeah. It, like you said, it's uh, uh, the, the tackling dummies and the, the staying apart and running through cones can, can only do so much. They want to get out there. And, and our spring season is, is for most of the age groups, our flag season. So it's, it's not so much tackling. It is uh, still still with the flagging situation. You're still inside that three meter bubble. So it's uh, unfortunately, we can't even be practicing those skills right now. So that's something that we're hoping can be opened up in the next few weeks here. And correct me if I'm wrong, but flag football seems to be even safer, all things considered, not just the physical aspect of avoiding those big tackles and open field hits, but if all you need to do is tear the flag off of somebody's hip to essentially stop the play, that means you can safely play a game of football at an arm's distance. No need to wrap somebody up to try and bring them down to the ground. That's right. Yeah, when when uh, we, we were under phase three restrictions last year, we, we had to follow uh, some guidelines as far as clothing and gear that we had to wear to to eliminate as much as possible the uh, the spread of, of the virus uh, through touching and through uh, through through breath and and for for lack of a better word through spit <laughs> as as it flies out as, as people are breathing. But um, uh, flag flag is definitely like you say less of a contact sport so we're hoping that uh, that through the spring here we'll be able to to at least do that dr bonnie henry is hopeful that youth sports can reopen if quote things go well would it be fair to say that safety is still the number one concern for the players the coaches the parents basically everybody associated with the minor football association of course i mean we've just lived through this for a year of course we're going to have some uh some level of fear uh, around that but uh we're looking looking to things you, you know the numbers are are relatively good especially uh, i saw recently some some stats about chilliwack as, as being actually one of the better cities for uh for cases and that so we're, we're hoping that that uh is, is continued through our our sports uh through our football as far as uh possibly being safer because of that um uh, we're always open to uh to to making sure that we're following all of the uh the guidelines and and if things do get uh get bad again then then obviously the restrictions might change and and we might have to go back to uh phase 2 he is chris clark president of the chilliwack minor football association chris thank you so much for giving us some time here today thanks for having me on